Before we get started, I just wanted to warn our listeners that the subject matter we'll be exploring on this episode can be graphic and violent. Although we endeavor to make PolicyCast open and available to everyone, there will be some, including young children, for whom this episode may not be appropriate. The subject of sexual violence is never an easy one to cover, but if we're to overcome this global abrogation of human dignity, we have to confront it straight on. I wanted to look a little bit more deeply at this and and work out, first of all, why this rape case was covered and then what was the conversation around it in the media. It's good that people were talking, but, but what were they saying? Hello, and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes or elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. You can also find us in Boston Globe Opinion and on Twitter at PolicyCast. Today, we're joined by Joanna Jolly, BBC's South Asia editor, who's recently assigned to the BBC's Washington Bureau as a feature reporter. She's currently a Joan Shorenstein Fellow at the Kennedy School's Shorenstein Center. Joanna, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Can you take us back to 2012 and explain what exactly the Delhi gang rape case was and what made it so important? Right. Well, on December the 16th in uh, 2012 in Delhi, um, in South Delhi, which is which is generally a very sort of upmarket part of Delhi, it's it's where the middle class and the upper middle class live. There's a shopping mall there um, called Sackett Mall and a girl had gone there to watch a film, a a young woman in her early 20s had gone there to watch a film with her boyfriend. They'd gone to watch The Life of Pi and they'd come out of it at about nine o'clock in the evening and they were looking for an auto rickshaw to take them home or for a bus to take them home. They couldn't find either. It was a really crowded night. Um, They were a little bit desperate of, of trying to find a way to get home when a bus suddenly stopped and somebody started calling out from the bus and saying, you know, get on this, we'll take you home, we're a private bus for hire, come on. So the couple got on the bus. What they didn't know when they got on the bus was actually it was being driven by a group of men, a group of six men who had commandeered the bus. One of them drove it for his profession. He was a bus driver, but they'd sort of taken it out of hours for the sole purpose of going around and looking for people they could pick up and harass, they could rob or perhaps rape a woman because that's what they were looking for. They were looking for some fun, as they put it. Anyway, they, they picked up this couple what happens next is absolutely horrific. They attack the couple. They 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 attack them with iron bars. Um, they manage to knock the man unconscious, sort of inca- incapacitate him. They took the girl. They repeatedly raped her. They sodomized her. They used an iron rod to uh, rape and sodomize her. And in the process of doing that, they managed to pull out her intestines. And one of them threw the intestines away. When they'd finished um, with her... Uh, they threw her and her companion out of the bus onto the road and they tried to run over them in an attempt to kill them, to, to finish them off. They were pretty close to death, as it was. Um, the couple lay on the road for quite a while. Um, some some people did stop, but I have to say, uh, not you know they weren't rushed to hospital immediately, but eventually the police did stop and the couple were rushed to hospital. Um, the boy survived the attack. Uh, he was badly beaten, but he survived the attack. The girl lived for two more weeks. Uh, she was eventually airlifted out to Singapore because uh, her injuries were incredibly grave. She had no intestines left. And um, two weeks after the attack, she died. Now, she was able to give uh, statements to the police um, following the attack. Um, and because of these statements and because of the boy's statements, they were able to apprehend the six men responsible. Now, um, I... Um, was not living in Delhi at the time of this attack, but I had lived in India um, on several occasions uh, before this. Um, and 
I'd particularly lived in India as a student, as a, as a young kind of student, and I used to travel everywhere by bus. And I was, um, I knew from from living in Delhi that there is a sort of um, general harassment that happens on the streets to women, um, especially on public transport. So many people, like many people, when I first heard this story, I thought, oh God, you know, you know, this is really bad. This is kind of the worst of the sort of things that can happen in India. Um, this case, when it was publicised by the newspaper, and I can talk about how it became publicised, because that wasn't a straightforward thing either, but when it was publicised by the newspapers in the sort of subsequent days, caused an absolute outrage um, on the streets of India. And you can probably remember the protests, especially in Delhi, with women and men as well, which is hugely encouraging, going out onto the streets and saying, enough, no more, we want better security, we want better laws, we want better enforcement of laws, and we want to, to know that our women, are, you know, that women are safe generally um, in India, because we feel that this has been going on for so long. Um, and the rape protests continued, they, it, the, the, the story sort of ignited a fuse throughout the country, and there were protests in all the major cities, and this put enormous pressure on the government, um, the then Congress-led uh, government at the time, which uh, uh, brought together a committee of legal experts who took submissions from um, from people in the country, uh, women's groups, feminist groups, legal experts, the police, as well as submissions from around the world, including from here at Harvard University. Um, and they came up with a report uh, called the, the, the Verma Committee Report. Uh, it was led by uh, Justice Verma. Um, and uh, they uh, suggested a number of things that they felt should happen to improve the situation for women in the country, which included, you know, better policing, uh, more stringent sentencing, um, but all, and, and, and a kind of wider definition of what, what was rape and what was harassment. But also, they suggested changes to society. Um, for instance, they, they talked about um, this idea that in um, a, a lot of cultures within India uh, are very patriarchal, and the idea that the family's honour rests on the virginity of a woman and so if a woman loses her virginity in some way that's untoward if it's not in marriage then mm -hmm. she she's shamed because of it they they looked at that they looked at some of the more dubious aspects of um, kind of victim blaming that had had grown up in the medical profession in particular when rape victims come to present um, and, and I can talk about that more that that's quite an interesting fact and they recommended a lot of changes um, in response to this report, the government did change the law. They tightened their criminal law on um, sexual violence. Um, they widened the definition of rape. Um, they increased the sentencing. Um, they in, they uh, introduced fast-track courts because one of the problems was that rape cases, when they were heard in India, were languishing in the courts for a very long time because India has a huge um, legal backlog of cases. Um, and so they... Um, said that fast-track courts should be introduced in which rape cases could be heard quickly um, and um, and and, th and those changes were made um, now why I'm here at the moment at Harvard looking at this story looking at this horrific story is as a journalist um, you know as I, I covered it from from afar um, for the first few months um, from London as a BBC South Asia ed editor and then I went to India um, probably about nine months after the rape, to make a documentary looking at how many of these changes, the, the legal changes that had been brought about, the suggestions that had been made, had been implemented. And I was quite... The conclusions I found from that documentary, which um, aired on the BBC, was... I was quite depressed by it because um, I found that a lot of the suggested changes hadn't been implemented um, and that the situation hadn't really changed in any way. Um, when I came here to Harvard, what I wanted to do was take a really good look at the coverage of 
the the incident, the in, initial rape, and then the subsequent coverage afterwards, and ask, you know, how did the Indian media, in, in particular the English language print media, where I've kind of like sort of focused my research on, mm-hmm. how did they deal with this subject, and how did they subsequently go on to report sexual violence? And mm-hmm. that's and that's basically what I'm here studying. Mm-hmm. And so what have you found as you've looked through this year? Your, your report is, is not going to come out for a couple of months, I understand, um, but you've been looking very closely at it. What are your uh, initial observations? Just absolutely initially, I have this graph here, which of course nobody can see, but I can show it to you. <laughs> um, and you can see an absolute spike in <laughs> reporting yeah. of sexual violence. It's, it's, a, it's a flat line, essentially, then a very high spike back to a... Well, a slightly, slightly higher, higher <laughs> flat line. <laughs> yes. um, that's well described. Um, yes, I mean, this is a very sort of preliminary like finding, which is that, yes, before this incident was reported, sexual violence was not hugely reported in India. I have another statistic that said in the broadcast media, in the months preceding the attack, there was about 100 minutes were given to the issues of any issues surrounding sexual violence. Mm -hmm. And the month following the attack, 262 hours. So you can see this massive spike in attention. So so first of all, suddenly from hardly reporting sexual violence, the Indian media went to hugely reporting sexual violence. Which you would presume is a good thing that, you know, it's on, on the agenda. Yes, exactly. And I think a lot of people at the time said, isn't it great? we're debating this this is out there in the open and that certainly was the narrative and certainly when I um, I was quite often asked this question as South Asia editor for the BBC so aren't things better now it's it's great everyone's talking about it and yes everybody's talking about it and yes that is a good thing I don't think you can dispute that but I wanted to look a little bit more deeply at this and, and work out you know first of all why this rape case was covered and then what was the conversation around it in the media it's good that people were talking but but what were they saying um it's it's clear that you know given the response to the case this that that implies that this was not a uh, isolated incident what exactly about the case tapped into the kind of you know uh, the national psyche like that um It's interesting. I've spoken to several Indian reporters who were working in the newsroom at the time that the case broke. And I had one story from a reporter who um, was the court reporter, not the crime reporter. And and things are quite segregated in Indian newsrooms. Everybody has their own beat. And the crime reporter sort of walked into the newsroom and said, oh, there's been this rape. What do you want? 200 words, you know, which is the usual amount of of, um, coverage that would go on a rape in a national newspaper of of this sort. And the editor looked at, it, at the details and said, hold on a moment, she, she was going to this mall. She went to see this English language film. It, she, no, we, 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 need to, we need to do more on this. And um, the, the reporter I spoke to said that this was because the, the victim was deemed to be a PLU, which is a shorthand for a people like us. And um, so she fell into this sort of category. They thought, actually, it turned out that she actually wasn't, but they thought when they originally when reporters originally saw the details that she fell into this category of being belonging to the Indian elite or the aspiring elite and therefore it's going to to have a pickup especially in the English language media among the people who buy it who who perhaps would also go out at nine o'clock at night to watch a film Mm -hmm. and go to that particular mall which is very famous uh, and try and get home so that's why the story was initially picked up I think that the the idea of the the horrific injuries hadn't quite um it, it didn't come out immediately though clearly she was very injured and clearly it had been a a very violent gang rape Um, when those details started to come out that again fueled um, the interest in the story and uh, you know I'm not going to sit here and say oh Indian media is so salacious we're all salacious Mm -hmm. as media and we all like gory details even though we're repelled by them and you really only have to look at the coverage of the Brussels attacks 
Um, there's quite there's some quite unsavoury coverage out there. I think that we don't need to see, but. Um, Certainly, um, I think when one paper got a little bit of news on the the extent of the the gruesome injuries, the other papers who perhaps I think had had editorial debates. I mean, I spoke to journalists who were in newsrooms who said, you know, we we knew what had happened to her, but we didn't really want to write about it. Um, they felt forced into publishing those details because one paper had got them, and so the mm-hmm. others had to kind of jump on the bandwagon. And because that is the competitive nature of what's essentially a business. Um, And at the time, some reporters said they felt uncomfortable doing this because they didn't know whether the victim was going to live or die. And if she had lived, she would have had, even though it's illegal to name um, a rape victim under Indian law, the coverage was getting pretty close to home. It was it was pretty clear who she was. And I think the Indian papers were were skirting, were sailing very close to the wind there, you know, interviewing parents, interviewing neighbours. They felt that the girl would then have to live down the shame of the fact that everyone knew that this horrific attack had taken place against her. but you know she did she did die and then i think the fact that those those details are so horrific again fueled the protest and fueled the anger and like you say that mm-hmm. this is a situation that had been going on for a while one of the reporters i spoke to said that just a month prior to this attack happening she had um reported a, a very similar crime um with very similar injuries though the victim had survived but the victim was a homeless woman and um the editor said 200 words 300 words you know news in brief mm-hmm. um because it didn't have that resonance. You know, mm-hmm. she wasn't watching an English-language film at a fancy mall. Mm-hmm. And was this kind of salacious coverage, which, as you say, it's it's uh, it's inevitable in any, any place where you have uh, a free press, essentially. Although that yielded more discussion of this issue, was it the right type of discussion? Yes, I mean, we're talking about a huge broad spectrum of, of media here. There are more than 13,000 English-language la- publications in India and within even the spectrum I'm looking in there there's um you have the more long form um magazines who really did try and tackle this issue who who had the space and perhaps um lacked the political pressure or, or the commercial pressure on them to um treat it as a sort of moving news story and were able to delve into it a bit more deeply and and yes um I think that these publications did try and deal with those societal issues um, behind uh, sexual violence and they looked at um, family structure they looked at patriarchy they looked at um, the fact that marital rape is not a crime in India um, they they looked at how a lot of rape actually the majority of rape happens within the home or, or within an environment known to the victim whether that's a school or office environment um, so it, it would be wrong to say that that coverage didn't happen because it did um, and there's there was some really good reporting on it but in a way that was the exception rather than the norm because um, the the daily papers the pe- people are under pressure to get the story out um, they by publicizing the most sensational aspects of the case they really drew on the emotion around it and and the you know we you, you only have to look back at the sort of videos of the protests at the time there are people being um, water cannon you know in the street mm-hmm. or they have this thing in India a lati charge where the um, police beat um, protesters with sticks it looks horribly violent you know people really were out in the street complaining and 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 expressing their anger um, and this emotion in some of the daily newspapers was channeled off into um, into sort of newspaper campaigns, which instead of addressing the issues behind sexual violence, instead called for some kind of quick fix solutions. So one of them was hang the rapist, the other was chemically castrate the rapist, and the other one was lower the age of juvenile responsibility because one of the rapists was under the age of 18 at mm-hmm. the time. 
Mm. And that in itself then led to a very interesting uh, newspaper campaign whereby um, a story was put about and they think it was um, one of the confessions of, of, of one of the accused, which the police then leaked, which named the juvenile offender as being the most violent, the one who took the intestines out. And, you know, he was mm. the one who was responsible for the awful atrocities. Now, this was this was a leak from one source and, and one paper got the story and suddenly it became you know, absolute truth in all mm-hmm. story, in all the papers. And everybody reported that the juvenile was the most responsible. And so we should lower our juvenile responsibility law in it. At the moment, it's 18 and that should be lowered. And how come, he, you know, he's allowed to get away with this? Because the maximum sentence at that time for a juvenile in India was three years. Mm-hmm. Whereas the other rapists, it was clear and, and they did eventually, um, one killed himself in prison, but the others eventually have now been sentenced to death. Now, um, this so so this campaign mounted and mounted and there was a lot of discussion about it and, and how can this man be getting away with this crime and it it's really really terrible um his case eventually went to to court which was a sort of closed court but re- reporters were able to get access to, to to the notes and from those notes they realized that actually he wasn't the most uh, violent um that there, there was no evidence from either of the victims to say that he was mm-hmm. and so he'd been sort of maligned i mean obviously he'd taken part he he did bear responsibility but this this story that he was the most violent was not true and one of the reporters who who then took the story to the editor told me her paper had particularly run a campaign um calling for the the juvenile detention law to be changed she she took the facts to the editor and said look he wasn't the most violent and the editor said you know what let's not do the story or let's just do two lines on it or three lines on it. You know, we've run a campaign otherwise. Mm-hmm. And and this campaign succeeded. It absolutely succeeded in changing the law mm-hmm. just this year. So last year. So It seems like the kind of easier things to accomplish, you know, changing the law about the age of when you can be uh, prosecuted were accomplished through the kind of daily newspaper grind. Whereas the things that the long form journalists were reporting on these societal factors, uh, those were much harder to address and therefore were dropped. It's very hard to address those, those subjects and it's uncomfortable to address them as well. You know, you're mm-hmm. looking at, at um, a structure of patriarchy of the way that society exists, which you kind of don't want to question because if you do, maybe you're going to question the whole basis to your society. So, you know, India has particular problems when it comes to violence against women. It has a very high rate of female feticide, for instance. And so the the male sex ratio is, is extremely skewed in some um, areas of India, particularly in the north of India where this rape took place. Um, it has problems with dowry deaths, even though dowries are illegal, um, and, and domestic abuse, uh, abuse and acid attacks. It has all these issues that come from um, opinions that are held within society about the position of women within society. And they are, they're going to be very hard things to tackle. So instead, papers take all this emotion that, that's, that's being drawn from this issue and like you say, call on the easy things, change the law, mm-hmm. you know, make, you know, have, have tougher sentences, you know, in, increase, you know, the people who can be sentenced. Mm-hmm. But um, in a way, it doesn't deal with the situation at all, because like, as I said, most rape or sexual violence occurs within this environment where the victim knows the perpetrator. It's not the stranger rape. Uh, and it's kind of almost easy to um, characterize all rapists as, as strangers who are going to grab you in the night as has happened with this mm-hmm. rape case rather than really deal with the fact that it probably is a, a problem throughout society and we need to look at this and and that's hard mm-hmm. you forward me uh, a, a clip of a former times of india editor who um said and i'm just going to quote him here we don't have a serious approach of doing more coverage to gender issues it didn't get institutionalized it was a one-off can you what do you make of that well i was asking him whether he thought that 
that that having had this massive rape case and suddenly newsrooms were a little bit more attuned to the issue of sexual violence and they and they went about dealing with it in a in a particular way and he said well well no not really we started to look for other sensational cases basically so if you had a case where the, the woman was a PLU or people like us or the perpetrator was or or there was some sort of extreme violence involved in the case that you could draw parallels with this case then then it would get attention um, but they, they didn't uh, like um, assign more reporters to to gender violence they they didn't sort of have a gender violence series or they they didn't um, there are no sort of um, rules within Indian reporting on um, how to report gender violence although there is this one absolute rule that you can't name the victim which is the law mm-hmm. though even that gets flouted from time to time um, but um, yes I think he's saying that you know we didn't suddenly think oh my god sexual violence is a problem in society we need to do something about it how about we we take a kind of considered approach to our reporting no that didn't happen it was more like well you know if you see something like this again put it in the papers it sells and and that's what's happened. And you've seen other cases since then being um, referred to as the second Delhi gang rape or like mm. the Delhi gang rape. And, and that mm-hmm. seems to be the benchmark now for reporting these crimes. Mm-hmm. Now, what do you think is going to happen going forward? I mean, what what's what's next? Well, at the moment, um, it seems the coverage, I mean, and this is a very cursory look at the coverage, um, but there seems to be a sort of worrying trend at the moment to look at male victims of rape in India. And... Um, that's because um, the laws surrounding rape is, um, are still very difficult. It's still very difficult to prove a rape in India. The forensic, um, th- there isn't that much forensic testing that goes on. Um, even though there are national standards for forensic, though most people don't have access to any sort of forensic kits or analysis or labs to analyze them or anything. So you end up in a case where um, it's a woman's word against the man's word. And quite often, um, I've spoken to legal experts who say that at the moment the the law is skewed towards women. Um, in a way, a sort of pendulum swim back towards them mm-hmm. because they won't believe for so long. And so if it's her word against his word, she's, she's likely to be believed. And so what's happened now is that there have been some recent statistics um, coming out of Delhi, actually, um, from the Women's Commissioner there, who say that um, they believe that the 53 to 58% of rape cases that are filed in the city are false. Um, now academic research says the number of false rape allegations are around two to eight percent so this is a huge amount of false rape allegations and this you know it's maybe particular to india uh, i mean this bears a lot more examination but it, are you saying that the 53 fake percent figure is an accurate figure or are they just inaccurate in their estimation I'm not sure the the criteria to which they, sure. you know, how, how they gathered their figure. But but what often happens in India is that, especially because cases, even though there have been fast track courts, have been introduced and are in operation, um, it still takes quite a long time. Not everyone gets a fast track court hearing. So it still takes several years for a rape hearing to go through. And there's quite a lot of pressure on um, women to recant or to turn hostile um, witness. And um, now the question is, are they recanting because they really did make a mistake or as is often said in India that because premarital sex is not allowed is not condoned in society the idea being that maybe a young woman and a young man would start having sex with each other would be in a relationship with the sort of agreement the tacit agreement that the man was going to marry the woman at some stage and if the man then turns around and says I'm not going to marry you now the woman the idea is that the woman will perhaps file a rape case against him because he breached his 
promise. And in fact, within the Indian law, they say if a man tries, if a man gets to have sex with a woman by promising her marriage, then that is rape. That's like a mm. false way of getting sex. Mm -hmm. So um, you have this particular problem in, in India where, where young people can't admit to having sexual relationships. And so um, the idea being that maybe women file false rape claims, case claims because um, they feel let down, they feel betrayed, um, or they're doing it out of revenge or spite to get back at the man. But equally, um, pressure is put on women. Like I spoke to a journalist who's, who's just done a data survey looking at false rape claims, and she estimates from her survey it's more like 13 to 14%. And she said even then, she didn't think that all of those uh, that percentage were false rape claims. But mm. when people gave their excuses for why they uh, were... Um, taking away their, their, their evidence, why, why, why they, they had changed their mind about it. They were saying things like, oh, I thought my husband's brother slept with me, but actually the lights were off and actually it was my husband after all. And, you know, the, the sort of ridiculous kind of excuses which possibly um, point towards pressure being put on the victim. It's really mm -hmm. difficult to know. But, but anyway, the narrative within the press at the moment is that there are male rape victims who um, have, are... It's, it's, they're being sort of spitefully acted against mm -hmm. and they need to be protected. You've been focused on this very specific case and its fallout in India, um, but a lot of what you've described, really, you could see that in a lot of different countries. You mentioned the press reaction to this horrifying crime. Uh, you would see that in the United States. You would see that in any you know country, as I said, with a free press. Um, do you think that some of the lessons that you're drawing from what happened in India uh, could possibly be broadly applicable? I think so, and I think there is research looking into rape culture. I suppose, I suppose, and, and as that's expressed through the the press, which is perhaps you know victim blaming, um, having favorable views of the perpetrator. Um, you know, the, the things we spoke about, you know, de demonizing the rapists as the other rather than seeing them as part of a societal problem. Um, there is research at the moment that's being done here at Harvard looking into whether that actually leads to a higher incident, um, incidence of rape here in the US. That's where the, that research is being collected. But certainly if you're in any, if, if you're sort of, I mean, I certainly know through reporting on uh, rape and violence amongst um, Aboriginal community in Canada and also rape and violence in Nepal, um, that if you have any sort of environment where there's a sense of impunity or where the victim is not believed or they just seem to have brought upon the, the crime upon themselves by their own behaviour, um, then you, you are going to be in a situation where perpetrators feel like they can get away with it a, a lot more. Mm -hmm. um, and, the, and also victims are going to be more scared about coming um, forward with their crime and trying to prosecute it. Mm -hmm. Well, Joanna Jolly is a reporter with BBC. Her report on sexual violence in India will be out in May. Oh, yeah, May, May, I hope. <laughs> uh, we'll link to it when it's released. Uh, Joanna, thanks so much for Thank joining you. us. HKS Policycast is produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Special thanks to those help who help get us out there every week, including Catherine Serafin at Harvard, as well as Ellen Clegg and Laura Colarusso at the Boston Globe. And to you for listening in. See you next week. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. You can subscribe to PolicyCast on iTunes, Stitcher, and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. And let us know what you think on Twitter, at PolicyCast.